Please turn to Acts chapter 15, and we're going to hear from our great God. Acts chapter 13. Now, you may have fainted when you saw the 20-point outline, probably the most points I've ever had in a sermon. Um, And my sermon will be a little bit longer than Paul's. His uh, time's out here at just a little over three minutes. (laughs) And actually, most commentators say that uh, it's probably just a summary of what uh, Paul uh, preached. But uh, let's begin reading at verse 15. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now, for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption for David after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, 
though one were to declare it to you. Amen. Father God, we come before Your Word. It is our desire to learn more and more what it means to tremble at Your Word. And I pray that as I preach, You would take these unworthy lips and that You would use them to quicken the the Word to the hearts of each one here, that they would be strengthened in their service uh, to You. And Father, that You would be glorified in our responses. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've come to Paul's first recorded sermon, and there is so much in this sermon here that uh, there's no way that I will be able to handle it at one time. And I've debated, you know, should I preach just one sermon, two sermons, three? Uh, Should I leave off some of the things? Uh, It's pretty tough to preach a sermon on a sermon, and that's what we're going to try to do today. In fact, if you look in your outlines... Uh, You will see, uh, I gave a synopsis of a number of topics. I think it would be fruitful for you to study on your own uh, at some point. And I'll just give a a little tiny summary of a couple, two, three, four of these. Uh, One fad that has uh, had a lot of influence in dumbing down preaching has been the idea that the New Testament was written in the simple, common street language that you would hear just on the streets all throughout the empire. And so they say we ought to never use theological terms from the pulpit. But uh, there have been a number of scholars have written uh, in recent years showing that that was absolutely uh, false. Uh, That, yes, it was written in Koine Greek, but as uh, one of the translators of the ESV has written a marvelous book recently on this, he said it was written in Koine, but the Koine is actually a lot closer to classical Greek than it is to street language. Uh, For example, there's no slang that was used. There's no uh, bad grammar, no coarse speech. And the koine that was used had so many Hebraisms in it. Those are Hebrew expressions and so many theological terms that any pagan that got converted came off the streets. He'd have quite a learning curve and, and figuring out, you know, some of the language in the church. And so I just don't buy this idea that you have to dumb things down and you can't use any theological jargon. Uh, any profession, any sphere of life that you go into, it's not true. You go into nursing, there's tons of new terms you have to learn. Same with engineering. Even a janitor, and I was a janitor for a while, has to learn some new lingo uh, that goes on in his profession. And I think the same is true uh, in the church. And let me give you one example in Paul's sermon here. There's five theological terms he introduces, but in verses 38 through 39, uh, he uses the term justification, a very specialized legal term that an ordinary person would not have recognized. Now, this is a no-no in the eyes of many people. And actually, I was disappointed that the ESV didn't translate this justification. Almost all versions do, even some of the more paraphrastic ones. Uh, They kept the old RSV on that. Uh, but uh, uh, the point is, even your, theologi- uh, even your discourse out there in the world is informed by the Bible. Uh, let me quickly give you, uh, let's take three of these here, three other examples. I think this sermon clearly contradicts the contention that many modern uh, historical redemptive uh, preachers have that you can't use application in the sermon. When you look at any of the sermons in the Old and New Testament, you'll find application. It just ain't so. Okay, uh, Paul uses application here. 
Uh, another example for decisionalist, high-pressure evangelists who think that any time you present the gospel, you've got to press for a decision right there on the spot, you know. Can't let the sales opportunity get away. If you read verses 42 and following, you'll see Paul didn't use that kind of high-pressure manipulation. No altar call here. Uh, no laying of hands on these people and uh, making them pray the prayer before they're ready. It really is much more of a reformed uh, approach to evangelism. And in speaking of Reformed, one more example here. There are a lot of Reformed people who insist that you ought never to bring up the doctrines of election and predestination when you're sharing the gospel with others. So I think Paul would disagree. And you read the sermons of Christ. Wow. I mean, he scares the socks off of people by bringing up this concept that the, God does not choose all to salvation. And he uses it to, to, to bring the hearts of people to consider uh, the claims of, of God. I don't think it's inconsistent at all. So anyway, I, I just don't want you to get the idea because I'm picking one part of Paul's sermon and preaching on the doctrine of God. What kind of a God is it that Paul is proclaiming that there aren't more things that uh, we could fruitfully uh, think about? But having said all that, I love the awesome God that Paul believes in. Uh, he starts in verse 17 by saying, the God of this people, Israel. God belonged to Israel in a special relationship that was not true of the other nations, and Israel belonged to God. He was the God of this people, Israel. And throughout Israel's history, God interacted with them and showed Himself to be their personal God. I used imagery of being married to them. Now, certainly there was imagery as well of his transcendence, of his majesty, but he was a personal God. And we need to ask ourselves if our God is so formal and so distant that we don't have a personal relationship with him. I know we reform people have tended to shy away from uh, pietism, but we shouldn't overcorrect in the opposite extreme either. What does Hebrews mean when it promises us the same promise he gave to the Israelites in the Old Testament. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What does it mean for God to leave a person? Okay. Uh, what does God mean when he says that we must cleave closely to him? Or when he promises, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James 4 verse 8. What does it mean for God to draw near to us? Or when the psalmist laments on that particular day that he felt like God was so distant from him. Uh, it troubled him. He wanted to have the comfort of God's presence with him. I think those are just sample examples of how God does not want our Christianity to be devoid of relationship. Our God is a personal God. But it's also important to see that God is personally involved in history in the day-to-day -day affairs of life. Now, pietists have uh, historically tended to focus on their relationship with God internally and have neglected the idea that God is sovereignly at work out there all the time in all of the events of history. There are many evangelicals who act as if God, you know, kind of created the world, yeah, but He wound it up like a clock and He only intervenes in this universe every once in a while. And yet Hebrews 1 verse 3 makes it very clear there wasn't anything in this world could exist if God was not upholding all things by the word of His power, if He was not governing all things in His wisdom and uh, in His goodness. In fact, some Reformed writers have described this as being a cosmic 
personalism. Now, that's not a new agey term. <laughs> uh, what they mean by that is that there is not a single thing in this universe that does not have the purposeful and personal touch of the Almighty God. Nothing in the universe. And so if you read through this passage, you will see that God is involved in every detail of history, not just the important things, in all things. In this verse, He chooses them. He makes them great during their sojourn in Egypt. He redeems them. Verse 18, God put up with them in the wilderness. Verse 19, He destroyed the nations. Verse 20, He gave them judges. Verse 21, God gave them a king. And you see that all the way through this sermon, nothing just happens. God makes it happen. And so this sermon is a beautiful example of how we ought to teach history in our homeschooling. Don't treat history as boring stuff that just happened. Uh, when was the last time you read a history book where God is really at the heart and center of everything that happened in that history book like Paul makes uh, God here in, in, in his little speech? When I was growing up, the history books that I read in grade school and in high school almost seemed to imply, and they were, they were secular books, they implied a cosmic impersonalism. And man, was it boring to memorize all of these random facts and figures of things that didn't seem to be, have any purpose. The only purpose I could see in the history books was the purpose of man to conquer and to build and to change things. And their purpose was constantly being thwarted, right? And so, other than human purpose, I didn't see a whole lot of purpose. It's this happened here, this happened here, that happened over there. And I was having to memorize a whole bunch of things that I did not see the correlation uh, with. And so, if you have a biblical philosophy of history in your homeschooling, you will be showing your children that Christopher Columbus's discovery of America, and there were a lot of people discovered it before he did, but his discovery was not a mistake. It was a part of God's sovereign plan to expand his kingdom. When you talk about the plowshare and its invention, you, you'll be showing how this was used by God to further the kingdom of uh, his son in Europe. Uh, when you look at the Magna Carta, you'll see it as one of several steps that God was building block upon building block using to extend liberties uh, in this world. And thankfully, there are more and more uh, history books that are coming from a providential perspective. In fact, one of the things we've been talking about, we'd love to see uh, maybe one or two providential history fairs uh, uh, in Omaha where the students, the, the young people can be doing speeches and putting on, uh, you know, maybe multimedia demonstrations or in various ways showing how God himself was advancing his cause through the historical event that they're going to be talking about. I think that'd be great. But until we understand God's purposes in history, until we see that his providence is governing everything for his glory and for our good, history is going to be boring. History is supremely important in Christian education. And I think if you begin to look at history in this way, it'll take on new meaning. So start buying books that are providential history books and realize we serve a personal God who is actively at work in the world. The third thing that we see about this awesome God is that He chooses. Verse 17 again, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers. Now, when you read in Genesis, you will see that uh, Abraham was not the one who initiated things. 
God initiated. He chose Abraham out of his paganism without Abraham initially having any inkling. He just chose him. And then it goes on to say that God chose Isaac and he rejected Ishmael. He chose Jacob and he uh, uh, rejected Esau. And it wasn't because one was good and the other was bad. Both were sinners. In fact, Romans 9 makes it quite clear. He chose them before they had done anything good. He chose them even while they were in the womb. And so, uh, we should not be looking at um, God's choice of us in this way, where God looks down the corridors of history and He chooses those who He says, who's going to choose me? I think I'll choose them. That's not the way God does it. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. John fifteen sixteen. And so I want you to look at um, verse 48 of Acts 13, the second sentence, where it says, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Notice that it doesn't say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. That's putting the cart before the horse. He says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Okay, the belief flows out of God's election. It's enabled by God's election. That's the doctrine that uh, Paul is presenting before these people. And I praise God that my, um, my salvation does not hang on my choice. It hangs upon God's choice. Uh, and so, uh, to me, this is, this is a, a wonderful, wonderful doctrine. It means that God is really God. Not just, you know, a finite being who interacts and reacts to the people uh, out there. That's the doctrine of openness of God theology. They have a totally different God. But our God is a God who chooses. A fourth thing that we see is that this God is a protective and gracious God. His choices are not blind fate. We do not believe in fatalism. Muslims do, but we do not. Though God is an electing God, His election is consistent with His kindness, His love, His protection, and all of the other things that are in your outline there. The second part of verse 17 says, "...and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt." So this is talking about that period in history when Joseph was elevated to the position of being second in command. And along with him, all of Israel was lifted up, exalted, protected, provided for. Uh, God was caring for the details of their lives. In fact, long before Deuteronomy 28 was written, God was producing those blessings and those cursings in a historical uh, context. And so we can count on the fact God continues to be a protective, caring God in His sovereignty. He loves us. Now, Paul skips over the generations that did not know God in Egypt and fell into idolatry. They came under historical judgment, and that was the slavery that they were experiencing in Egypt. But the third phrase speaks of Paul's God as being a redeeming God. It says, and with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Every generation must find redemption in God. Uh, and redemption is not an oddity that happens just every once in a while, every few generations. It's God's very character to redeem. He calls Himself Redeemer as a name. Anytime He names Himself something, that's of the very character of God. And so we can have hope that God can indeed lift us out of the mire and the bondage that we're experiencing in America. Why? Because He's a redeeming God. He loves to do that. This is the, the, the thing He loves to characterize Himself by. The sixth thing that is so encouraging about God is that He is a patient God. Verse 18, 
It says, now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. Now, at first blush, that may not seem like a very comforting thing. You know, if uh, God really didn't love us, he says, okay, well, I'm, I'm willing to put up with Phil Kaiser, but I really don't care for that guy. That would not be comforting, would it? But if we realized that the people that he is putting up with here were the unbelieving generation, and both the Old and New Testaments make that clear, and if we realize the reason he is putting up with these people who are headed toward hell is for the sake of his elect people like Moses and Joshua and Caleb and all of the believers who are 20 and under, then suddenly this patience of God takes on a whole new character. It becomes very encouraging. You realize this patience with those who are the non-regenerate, is for the sake of the elect. Now, let's just think about that for a second. The reason nations aren't instantly judged today is because God cares about His true people. Okay? It's not that He's careless about the sin in America, that He is so patient. You, you might get the impression, you know, God, I hate this sin so much. How come you don't hate it? How come you're not doing anything about it? God hates the sin in America far more than we do. But he's patient with America for a specific purpose. God wants the meek to inherit the earth. But if we're not to inherit a scorched earth, it has to be preserved, right? And so we can thank God for his patience. It was God's patience that enabled the Israelites to inherit, you know, the, the vineyards and the houses and all of the beautiful lands in Canaan instead of inheriting a desert. It was God's patience that enabled them to inherit it little by little so that they could benefit from what they were inheriting. And it's the same today. If we're to inherit, if the meek are to inherit the earth here in America, God is patient with the non-elects so that we can benefit from the things that the unrighteous do. Benefit from the steel factories and the computers. He's a patient God and we need to learn to appreciate the purposes for His patience. Now, that does not mean that judgment never comes. Verse 19 indicates He is indeed a God of judgment. It says, and when he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And so that verse indicates God is a God of judgment, but his judgments have a perfect timing. Remember, he had told the, the Israelites that they could not have gone in there earlier because the cup of the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. And we might wish, God, how come you're not judging them instantly? He's got a perfect timing for his judgments. Of course, we do need to ask, right? But uh, he does have perfect timing. And point eight shows that his attributes do not contradict one another. Even though he's a God of judgment, he's also a generous God. The reason that the nations were dispossessed of their territory was because of their ungodliness, their rebellion against him and their sin. But the reason that Israel inherited the land was not because they were such swell folks. It wasn't because they were good. It's because Jesus bore the judgment in their place. You see, in a sin-sick world, judgment is always unavoidable. <laughs> the only reason you can have any blessings poured into your life is because Jesus bore the judgment you deserve uh, in your place. And so there's always judgment. It's either the judgment falls upon men or it falls upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But those two are not in any way contradictory. He's a God of judgment. He's a God of generosity. And uh, Reformed people speak of these kinds of judgments as redemptive judgments. Verses 20 through 22 indicate that he is a sovereign God. Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines the adjective sovereign as, quote, above or superior to all others, Supreme in power, rank, or authority. 
And so the term implies that there are rulers underneath this sovereign. There are ranks underneath this sovereign to whom they are accountable to God, but God rules over all. Now, to think of American presidents and congressmen and mayors and judges as people who really don't have to acknowledge God's law in their day-by-day decisions is to deny God's sovereignty. It really is. Uh, Many Christians think, oh, we ought not to bring the Bible into politics. They just want to keep God's law out of that whole picture. But that's rejecting the God of the Bible. Let's just uh, quickly take a look at some of the verses here. Verse 20 says, after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And so I want you to notice, God is the one who appointed the judges. He's the sovereign. They are the vassals. Verse 21. And afterward, they asked for a king. Now, why would they ask for a king? Because he's the sovereign. He's the only one who can authorize such a thing. They have to go to him. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him... So notice that God can disapprove of kings. He can take tyrants out at any time. When he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king. Now, if you took the time, we're not going to have the time to develop it, but if you took the time to look at the the Old Testament texts where that happens, you'll see God didn't act unilaterally. He worked through institutions. He worked through people. And so you see... The citizens voting for their representatives in each of the 12 states of Israel. And then you see the representatives of those states choosing Saul and later on choosing David. But even though the people chose them, they are acting under God's authority. And God is the one who appoints uh, these uh, kings in place. That's the key point. God still puts them into uh, into office, even though he does it through the limited sovereignty of the state. Your belief that God is sovereign ought to affect your politics, your views of church and family, and even your individual piety. Uh, Nothing trumps God and His law. Uh, One of the books that we read in our foundations class was written in the 1500s by Junius Brutus. Actually, that was his pen name because he didn't want to get hung. Um, But it was a vindication of liberty against tyrants or a defense of liberty against tyrants that sometimes... Um, uh, translated. Wonderful, wonderful book. If you don't own that, um, I I can get you a free PDF uh, copy of it. But it's a fantastic book. And that book had more influence upon America's founding fathers than any other book, according to our second president. And and there are others who said the same thing. And in that book, uh, these were reformed writers who were saying, what does it mean to have limited state sovereignty and state rights And um, what does it mean to have a covenanted or a federal government? See, federal government, some people think means big government or centralized government. Very opposite. It means covenanted. Federal is just a Latin word for covenant. Uh, What does it mean to have delegated powers, enumerated powers, limited powers? It's a marvelous study. And all of that 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 he teach flows out of the doctrine of God's unlimited sovereignty. He is the supreme sovereign. And that had a huge influence on America. Well, verse 22 indicates that God's sovereignty was either recognized or rebelled against through adherence to the law or through rejection of God's law. The God that Paul knew was a God of law. When a king breaks God's law, he is a rebel king by definition. When he follows God's law, he is a man after God's own heart. So take a look at verse 22. 
When he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Why was Saul rejected as a legitimate king? Because he wouldn't do all God's will. He, he, he rejected some of God's laws and he rejected his limited sovereignty and wanted to take on unlimited sovereignty. And that's what America is doing today. They're trying to play God. They're trying to take on unlimited sovereignty automatically. That leads to tyranny. We cannot claim to submit to God's sovereignty if we are not seeking to follow God's law, all of his will. That'd be a contradiction in terms of sovereignty and law go hand in hand. And yet, how many times do I hear reformed people say that they believe in sovereignty of God, but they reject God's law, especially as it applies in culture? That is a non-reformed view of sovereignty. Uh, sovereignty is always expressed through the law. So the God of Paul was a God of law. And yet, in no way does that contradict the fact that he is a saving God. The very next breath says... From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. It is our very inability to keep God's law that makes us need a Savior. But the only way Christ could be a Savior is if He perfectly kept God's law. And what does He do when He saves us? He enables us to be zealous keepers of God's law. That's what Titus says. The whole purpose of his coming was to purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And so there is really no contradiction here. A lawless grace or a graceless law cannot help us at all. It cannot save us. And so I want you to notice how law and grace are kept together as the holy God prepares our salvation in verses 24 through 28. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now, let me just talk about that repentance for a moment. Even though we are justified by faith alone, it's faith that claims and that receives our justification. Faith is never alone. It always has repentance and you cannot be saved without repentance. Now, repentance doesn't justify you. Only faith justifies you, but repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. And that's why he starts with repentance here. Uh, why do we need repentance? Well, it's because there's a holy God who hates sin, hates rebellion. He demands holiness. But the reason we need faith is because we can't find holiness in ourselves. We have to receive, first of all, a legal record. That's justification. And then a legal life, not a legal, a a holy life. That's sanctification from Christ. It's all lived by faith. So, never separate faith and repentance. Verse 25. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Now, Paul's whole sermon has been leading up to Christ and Christ's provision of salvation. Even John was not worthy of it. Even he needed a Savior. All of the saints, all of the prophets of the Old Testament were unworthy. They needed a Savior that was to come. That's the only way we can stand before a holy God. Verse 26, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. So, what word of salvation? It's the word that we need to repent of our lawlessness on the one hand, and it's the command that we need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, who alone is worthy. 
without the call to repentance, without the use of the law, we wouldn't see our need of salvation. Uh, and without turning our way, eyes away from our own lawless inabilities to Christ, the second David, there's no way that uh, we could achieve salvation uh, either. And so there is, uh, salvation and holiness are clearly linked. Now, all of this, this is point 13, all of this was planned by God before the foundation of the world. Verses 27 through 29 show that this was not an afterthought of God. He had planned the death of Christ long before. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know Him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning Him. And though they found no cause for death in Him, they asked Pilate that He should be put to death. And I want you to notice that phrase, have fulfilled them in condemning Him. From the time of Genesis 3, verse 15 and on, God had been prophesying that Jesus would have, well, the coming Messiah would have to be condemned before any of us could be saved. And these, these rulers, they didn't know what they were doing. They thought they were in control. All along, it turns out, they were puppets in God's hand as He is masterfully weaving His redemptive uh, history. And so, in opposing God, they were fulfilling God's plan all along. This is the kind of awesome God that Paul serves. Verse 29. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. And so God's plan could not be thwarted, could not be defeated. Not one single prophecy concerning the first coming was unfulfilled. Which, by the way, means that none of God's plan can be thwarted concerning our future, uh, concerning what he's planned in the future. You know, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's his plan. And his plan cannot be thwarted. Some people are scared to death of humanism out there. They see the giants in the land and say, oh boy, we better run into the caves and hide. No, his plan is we will go on and of the increase of his kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. Now, what's the Great Commission? Is it a foolhardy plan? Is it a hopeless plan? He says that we're called to disciple the nations and teach the nations to obey all things that Christ has taught. That's making Christian nations. No, that is not a foolhardy plan. God's plans are always accomplished. And so, uh, uh, He is a, a God who plans. Nor could His power be overthrown. Verse 30 goes on, but God raised Him from the dead. And then verses 31 through 37 continue to speak of the awesome uh, fact of the resurrection. Now, what's so cool to me about this is that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in your lives right now. Ephesians 1, 19-20 prays that we might, quote, know what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. He says the same power that raised Jesus out of the grave is at work in you who believe. Our God is a God of power. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't want us to be looking at this as a dead history. No, this is elevating for us who this God is who is at work in our lives right now. He's a God of power. And of course, if God had not also been a God of promise and of mercy, that power would just have condemned us to death. And so, verses 32 through 35 speak of our God as being a God of promise. And we declare to you glad tidings, 
That promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for their children in that He raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, and then He gives three promises from this God who always keeps His promises. Now, let me tell you, some, of, some people just think, you know, I don't want to study eschatology. Some people are pan-millennialists or they'll all pan out in the end and others are pro-millennialists. They say, whatever it is, I'm all for it, but they don't want to study it. But let me tell you something. If, they, if the people prior to the time of Paul had taken that attitude, what would have happened? Because for them, all of these things that he's talking about this as history, all of these things were eschatology. They were promises of what God would do in the future. And if they took the attitude, oh, you know, eschatology, everybody disagrees on that anyway. There's no point in studying it. They would not have had the faith to believe Jesus when he did come. They would not have been able to do that. And I I really believe that it's so important for us, if we're going to take seriously the fact that God is a God of promise, to start studying his promises for our future, because we can't have faith for the future if we don't know what God has promised for the future, can we? So eschatology, I think, is very, very Important. Our God is a God of promise. Now, those same verses also point to the fact that God is a merciful God. Verse 34. And the second uh, sentence, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. What a wonderful phrase. It's not that we're just hoping for mercies. Because of the resurrection, they are sure mercies. They are certain mercies. We can bank on the fact that God will cause His mercies to flow into our lives when we are united with Christ and we're looking to Him in faith. That's just God's nature to have mercy flow to those who are united with Christ. And so, when Satan tempts you to feel that you are worthless and useless and you might as well just give up. There's no point in your going on. He brings all of your sins and hangs your dirty laundry in front of your eyes. Here's what you need to do. You need to take your eyes off of that laundry. That's what Satan wants you to keep your eyes, looking at your sins and feeling miserable about yourself. Take your eyes off of that and put your eyes on Christ who is sufficient and believe that His mercies are sure. Not, I hope He will forgive me again but being confident that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? We've got to to have this faith looking to Christ and Satan's tendency is to make us always looking at our insufficiency and our inadequacies. It's a sure mercy. Now, part of the reason we can be so sure is that our God is a victorious God. The resurrection of Christ was not simply an act of power, It was a manifestation of God's victory over death, over Satan, over our flesh. Uh, From the time of Adam and on, death reigned. It won. Death reigned. Verse 36 says, David could not conquer death. He died. His body rotted. That means he got corruption. Okay, That's what corruption means. The promise was not about him, but Christ conquered death. And so verse 35 says... Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. God would not allow it. Corruption is trying to have the victory over Christ. God would not allow it. He is victorious. He is also a forgiving God in verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Now, there cannot be forgiveness of sins 
except through the Lord Jesus Christ. Some, some people, some evangelicals just treat God as if you know, he didn't care about sin. He just sweeps our sins under the carpet all the time. But we've got to get it into our heads that he is a perfect judge. He always condemns sin and sinners. He will by no means clear the guilty, he indicates. And so for God to forgive anyone is always a miracle. And yet forgiveness is part of God's nature. And let me read you a scripture that puts those two things into tension with each other. It's Numbers 14 and verse 18. This is a passage where God defines who He is. There's a number of passages like this. And He says this, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy. Here comes the phrases that are interesting. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He by no means clears the guilty. Doesn't that seem a little bit odd? Forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty. How in the world could that be possible? Isn't forgiveness clearing the guilty? And Paul, I think, deliberately puts those two concepts into tension with each other. And he reconciles the two doctrines in verse 39, where God is portrayed as a justifying God. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, it is really unfortunate that the ESV does not translate this as uh, justified. Uh, in fact, their translation, there's no legal concept at all that, that is in the Greek. It's, it's a legal concept. It's a courtroom concept. And frankly, I think it's because the ESV is, is, is a revision of the RSV, which was a liberal translation. Now, the ESV is a good translation, but many times these RSV things just come up and for, for strange, who, who knows why. Here's how the ESV translates it. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That is not what the word means. The word is a legal courtroom term. It's a judge who tells a person, you are not guilty. You are justified. Yes, this person is saying you're a sinner. But no, don't believe it. You are righteous. That's what the term means. Not guilty. You are righteous. And what is remarkable about these verses is that the judge is telling a guilty person who needs forgiveness. That's the context that he is not guilty. He's perfect. He is justified. It's a deliberate tension Paul is, is setting up. Now, how can a good God be a good judge and let a criminal off the hook? I mean, we would... We'd, we'd want to throw judges off the bench, right? If they were uh, letting criminals off the hook... How can a good judge, as God is a good judge, let criminals off the hook? And Paul says it's by Him, by Jesus. Notice that these people who are justified could never get off the hook if they tried to be justified by the law apart from Christ. Paul says there's no way that they could do it. The condemnation of Jesus mentioned in verse 27, just very quickly, we're going to go through this, is legally treated as our condemnation. The death of Jesus, mentioned in verses 28 through 29, is legally our death. And the resurrection of Jesus in verses 30 and following is legally our resurrection. And Paul said all of that had been promised in the Old Testament. Now, I believe that this is a summary of his sermon. We're not going to go to three-minute sermons in the future. This is a summary. Most commentaries hold to that. And so there are a lot of other scriptures he brought in. And one of the scriptures, almost surely, that Paul was talking about, it's the one that pointedly speaks to the resurrection of Christ and our union with it, is Hosea 6, 1 through 2, where it speaks of all who are united with Christ, were condemned in Christ, died in Christ, and were raised in Christ. 
So it's, in, it's by Him we're forgiven. It's by Him we are justified. Now, it's been very popular in some circles to teach that the legal concept of being declared righteous apart from the law, apart from the works of the law, that courtroom concept, that that's a scholastic invention of the Reformation. Do not believe it. You know, this is, this is what the new perspective on Paul is, is teaching. Do not believe it. It is rooted clearly in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The sinners of verse 38 are justified, it says, from all things. That would include past, present, and future sins. They're justified from all things, and they're justified by faith, not by the keeping of the law. In fact, Paul says in verse 39, it's impossible for anyone to be justified by the law. And so here we have the doctrine of justification by faith alone through the merits of Christ alone. And Paul later has to write the book of Galatians to these same people here because somebody down the road has been pulling them away from the purity of the gospel. And it's a dangerous thing uh, to do so, to mess around with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Let me read you from Galatians 1, 6 through 8. Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what we, you have received, let him be accursed. Well, that's how... In effect, Paul ends this sermon. Paul indicates that those who reject the gospel will be accursed forever in hell because our God is a fearful and an awesome God. Verses 40 through 41. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Now, who was Paul talking to? Paul was talking to people who thought they were saved. He was talking to members in good standing in the synagogue. And so what Paul was doing is exactly what the prophets in the Old Testament did. The prophets wrote to the church. They knew that there were false believers in the church. They didn't treat every circumcised uh, Israelite as going to heaven, like some people want us to treat all baptized people, you know, that... Treat them like they're going to heaven. They preached the gospel and they warned those who did not believe that yes, even though you are in the covenant, even though you are in the church, you will receive God's judgment if you do not persevere in putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God says the same to us. There may be covenant children here in this room today who have grown up and you've assumed everything that's being taught is true, but when you hear the doctrine of a personal God, it's just a theoretical concept. It's not an experienced doctrine. Yes, you believe in election, but you don't show the fruits of election. And uh, you uh, may show other signs uh, of uh, believing. You believe that God forgives sin, but your concept of God forgiving sins, He just sweeps it under the carpet. and You don't even worry about those sins. You don't see God's judgments and His disciplines in our life. In short... It may be that you have a different God than Paul's awesome God. And this is the way it was when I was growing up. Um, I believed the Bible. But what I wanted to believe, I picked and choosed from among those. I did not 
want to believe that Jesus Christ came to save me from my sins, as Matthew one twenty one says that He came, you shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from His sins. I wanted my sins. I liked my sins. Now, I wanted to be saved from hell, but I wasn't so sure I wanted to be saved from my sin. I wanted a God who would meet my needs, not a God who would be telling me what to do as a soldier in His army. Okay? And we've got to evaluate which God we serve. Is your God the sovereign God of the Apostle Paul? Or is he just a cosmic vending machine that's there for your convenience? What kind of a God do you serve? Is he a powerful and victorious God that you can put your trust in even in the midst of incredible trials? Or is he a God that you think will let you down? Do you value both his promises and his laws? Or do you pick and choose between those, whatever feels comfortable for the moment? Is your God a generous God who delights in blessing you through the merits of Jesus Christ? Or do you only see him as a wrathful God of judgment? On the other hand, you see God is so kind and so generous, you don't even think that we should ask for judgments. You certainly don't think there's going to be any judgment against you. God lets everybody off the hook, doesn't he? We've got to evaluate what kind of a God do we serve? Our conception of God must be consistent with the whole of the Scriptures, not just some phrases that are pulled out here and there. And it's my prayer that this passage here would realign our sense of wonder and amazement at the awesome God that we have. Our God is awesome if He's the same God of Paul. Let's pray. Thank You, Father, for this Scripture here. We thank You that down through history, You have chosen to use the foolishness and the weakness of preaching to enlighten and strengthen and cause Your church to go forward. Uh, Man thinks, as the Muslims do, that uh, 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 the only way that we can advance a cause is through power. And yet, Father, You have chosen to advance Your cause through weakness. And so I pray that You would take the weakness of this preaching and that You would build up this people to be a Gideon's army, Father, who would believe You uh, for great things in this world and would attempt great things for You. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.